0: Opinions expressed on Mountain Talk do not necessarily reflect those of WMMT, Apple Shop Incorporated, or the station's funders.
1: Welcome to this edition of Mountain Talk Monday. I'm your host, Kelly Haywood. In this episode, WMMT's Mimi Pickering shares two engaging speakers with us, who spoke at the 2017 KSEP Policy Conference. KSEP is the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy, a program of the Mountain Association for Community and Economic Development, or MACED. KSEP was created with the goal of improving the quality of life for all Kentuckians through research, analysis, and education on important and especially economic policy facing the state, helping us to make more fully informed decisions as a commonwealth. For a first segment of the episode, we hear Dr. Catherine Eden speak on her book, Two Dollars a Day, Living on Almost Nothing in America, which she co-authored with Dr. Luke Schaefer. The book was named one of the New York Times' most notable books of 2015, Dr. Eden is a Bloomberg Distinguished Professor of Sociology and Public Health at Johns Hopkins University and a leading poverty researcher. She is also a former Harvard professor and author of six books and 60 journal articles. As Dr. Eden points out, 40% of America's $2 a day poor live in central Appalachia.
0: You know, I'm a storyteller, but I'm also a numbers person. And I think the magic of $2 a day and the sort of secret behind the the impact it's had is really in that marriage of stories and numbers. So for those of you who are data nerds, you'll find things here to make you happy. And for those of you who are are story lovers, you too will find that there is something for you in this presentation. I want to tell you the origin story of $2 a day. All books uh, and projects have origin stories. I should tell you that I've been doing poverty research for about 25 years. I began my career studying welfare and how single mothers made ends meet on a system that paid too little to survive. So I really cut my teeth on that research prior to welfare reform. I went on to study other things, uh, namely the family and family structure and uh, housing. But it was in 2010 when uh, I was living in Boston at the time, I got a chance to return to Baltimore uh, to continue a very long-range study we'd been doing following kids who had been born in public housing in the mid-'90s and had been following them ever since. And they were just on the cusp of adulthood. And, and we realized that the literature on the transition to adulthood actually was only about middle-class kids. So we were going to go to Baltimore and tell this story from, from the perspective of these very disadvantaged kids. Uh, And it was while I was there uh, that I met Ashley. Ashley was 19. She had a newborn about uh, two and a half weeks old when we knocked on her door at the Latrobe Homes, a housing project in Baltimore, tucked right in the shadow of Baltimore's infamous prison. So Ashley opens the door, right, and she's, you know, visibly unkempt. You know, she doesn't make eye contact. Her hair... You know it's just kind of scraped back into a ponytail and most worryingly as she's you know passing uh, the baby from shoulder to shoulder she's not putting that critical hand behind the baby's head so the baby's head is sort of going like this you know we follow Ashley uh, up the stairs because uh, she's in the second floor of this row home and she's living there with her mom and uh, a younger cousin and uh, there's nothing <laughs> in this household except a trash-picked couch, a table with only three legs, so of course it's useless, right? It's shoved against the wall, and and just one chair. Now, all ethnographers are snoopy. You know, Ashley's sitting on the chair. One trick of ethnography is, is you know, never sit higher than your respondent. You never put yourself in a dominant position. So she's, she's sitting on the chair, and, and I'm sitting on the floor. And this gives me the... Perfect view of the kitchen cupboards, right? Because in a lot of public housing projects, the cupboard doors have long since come off and not been repaired. And we're talking about the transition to adulthood, but I'm noticing there's nothing in the cupboards. Most worryingly, I can't see any sign of, of baby formula. Now, back when I was doing my first book on how single mothers made ends meet with anthropologist Laura Lane, uh, we actually calculated the budgets of hundreds of single mothers across the country in repeated in-depth interviews. I spent my 20s running around America asking poor women about their budgets. So this is sort of a tick with me, right? I Sometimes I... I have a hard time not asking my friends, so how how are you making ends meet? (laughs) I I try not to do that too much. I didn't do it at dinner last night, really proud of myself, but I did it to Ashley. (laughs) I said, you know, Ashley, what's going on here? You know, I had learned uh, in the course of the conversation that there was actually an empty refrigerator as well and and I was actually stunned. Now, here's somebody who has studied poverty for 25 years who has arguably talked to more low-income single mothers than anyone—I maybe anyone I can think of in the course of uh, research, at least. And I should have figured this out. But 20 years after welfare reform passed, I'm sitting, uh, you know, almost 20, I guess at this point it was 15 years, I'm sitting in someone's kitchen floor and realizing that there is a household living completely apart from cash, that, you know, they have a housing subsidy. Nobody in the household at that time is getting food stamps, but they do have this housing subsidy. But there's no money from either TANF or work or disability or any other source coming into this household. I was absolutely stunned uh, by this fact. So we ended the interview. I paid Ashley the $50 that we typically do, to compensate people from their t- for their time. And I said, you know, Ashley, I think I have a few more questions. Can I come back tomorrow? You know, I was curious about, about uh, their situation, but I was always also worried about Ashley and the baby. So imagine, you know, my surprise when I uh, come back the next day. It was actually I wasn't actually on this trip. It was my research team. Came back the next day, and they meet Ashley at the door. She's clearly forgotten their coming. She has gone down uh, to the little pharmacy and and got a home perm, okay? She looks great. Not only that, she's walked down Broadway Avenue to the Goodwill, uh, about a mile down, and she's bought a pantsuit. She's wearing this pantsuit. She quite literally has a spring in her step and announces to the research team that she's on her way out to look for a job. So, $50. Now, this is sort of a, a double epiphany, right? The first epiphany was, is this a thing, right? Are there a growing number of Americans in the aftermath of welfare reform living on virtually no cash? Or is Ashley just sort of a one-off, an anomaly? And second, is there something special about cash? The American poor, at least for the moment, uh, you know, get more in terms of health coverage than they have in recent years. Uh, we have a food stamp program that covers many eligibles. But is there something about cash in the world's most advanced capitalist economy where you really don't have a barter system like they do in the developing world that makes the difference between a despondent young mother who can't even care for her baby adequately and a determined young woman about to seek out a job? I sort of didn't realize I had had a double epiphany, to be honest, at the time. I kind of put these insights into my back pocket, and I. I finished uh, this study of the transition to adulthood, and quite by coincidence that fall Luke Schaefer, data nerd from uh, the University of Michigan, shows up in my office. I was teaching at the Kennedy School at Harvard at the time. Now apparently I had agreed to sponsor Luke as a visiting (coughs) professor, but... I had completely forgotten he was coming. So he comes on a Monday morning, you know, the first day of the semester, and I'm trying to cover my confusion. So I tell him the story about Ashley, because the one thing uh, that I did did remember about Luke is he was one of the nation's experts on the one representative data source that could tell us better than any other whether Ashley's experience was a a thing, a trend, or a one-off. So I told him the story of Ashley, and he immediately, you know, got it. And he said, it just so happens that I have code on my computer, I just need to alter it a little bit, and I can actually tell you whether Ashley's experience is a one-off or a trend. Now, my memory is that he said, I'll be back tomorrow. He says, he said, I'll be back in a week. And I think this is because quantitative people want to convince qualitative people that they work harder. Uh, we still don't know the truth, but what we do know, I think, is pretty stunning. This, this is the, literally the graph he came back to my office with either a day or a week later. What this table shows, and these would turn out to be somewhat uh, conservative trend estimates as we got deeper into the data, is that about 600,000 families with children in 1996 were living under the $2 a day threshold by 2013 that number had increased to 1.5 million households with about 3 million dependent children now if you look over the course of a year what you see you know you want to see how long these spells are if you throw out all the brief spells just one or two months uh, you see that about uh, 3.2 million children are living in a spell of $2 a day poverty for at least three months out of the year. And about half of those, 1.7 million, are living in this condition for seven or more months in a calendar year. And again, we're using household income here and not family income, so this is a conservative story. The TANF program, for example, uses family and not household income. As the book has come out and got a lot of attention, We've gone further into the numbers to really deeply satisfy those of you who love data. These are additional estimates that show very strongly the same trend. These are annual estimates, actually, from the CPS and uh, the ACS, startlingly consistent uh, results showing a rise in the number of households uh, living on virtually no cash over the course of a year. Now, we know that administrative data are better than survey data, right? There's no problem with sampling. If you lie to the food stamp program about your income, it's a felony. It says so right on the food stamp application. What we have here is our numbers in the little boxes from the survey of income and program participation. This is the survey that Luke used to do the original estimates plotted against the administrative records from SNAP. This is such an eerie correspondence. Luke likes to say he quit work and went out for a double cappuccino uh, when he finished this table. But what you will notice, all kidding aside, is that the food stamp numbers really take off above and beyond the SIP numbers at the end of this period. And as I'm going to argue in a little bit, we think this is because of the rise of family homelessness. The SIP, along with the ACS and the CPS, are all household surveys, so they miss families are homeless, and even many families who are precariously doubled up in the household of another person. So again, I want to emphasize these are conservative numbers. We also wanted to look at other (coughs) indicators that things were getting worse at the bottom. These are some of those data. I'll be showing you more data as we proceed. This is according to the CPS, food pantry utilization in the United States. So this is not based on provider income, but on user income we do have provider income as well, shows the same basic picture. Dramatic, uh, almost monotonic rise in food pantry utilization in the US, despite the fact that the food stamp program has grown precipitously during these same years. And at the end of the talk, I'll give you some hints as to why I think that may be, at least for the $2 a day poor. So those are some numbers, but as we all know, uh, numbers only take you so far, and in many ways, The numbers I've just shown you raise more questions than answers. We wanted to really push ourselves hard, create a hard test for ourselves. So we decided that we would pick four places in the nation. These were all places where we were not living. And the test was, could we go for several months to each of these places, identify people living in this situation, and then begin to follow them over many months and years. So, of course, we chose Chicago, maybe the quintessential American city, We also chose uh, Cleveland, Ohio. This is a city that was known to its boosters, at least in the 1950s, as the greatest location in the nation. People say other things about Cleveland these days. It's not true. But anyway, we wanted to find a place that during the war on poverty was really thriving, but had since hit the skids, so we chose Cleveland. We also wanted to find a place that had been deeply, deeply and pervasively poor, during the War on Poverty, but it's since uh, seen a rebound. And we chose Johnson City, Tennessee, which is now at about the national average, but still has, as you know, deep pockets of poverty sort of tucked in to some of the economic recovery you see in that nation. I will say that $2 a day poverty is actually concentrated in this region more than any other in the nation. About 40% of all of the $2 a day poor in the nation reside in your region And finally, uh, we wanted to choose a place where uh, many folks said was the poorest place in America. One novelist uh, referred to it as the poorest place on Earth, so we chose two little hamlets uh, in the Mississippi Delta. And if you read the book, we did have to change the names of those towns and the county because they are so small, And, and we have to protect the confidentiality of our respondents. So what did we glean from these interviews? What I'm going to describe next is the hypotheses that arose from these qualitative and ethnographic data about the causes. You're going to also want to know how people survive on $2 a day poverty. I'm only going to give you a taste of that because I want you to come and talk to me at the book signing, a one-on-one, and buy the book. We use the proceeds for great things. But the first leg in this three-legged stool uh, of causality is the demise of the TANF program, and we provocatively entitled uh, this chapter, Welfare is Dead, in part because it is dead in the minds of our respondents, as you will see. So back again to the numbers. On the eve of welfare reform in 1994, about 10 million children, 5 million adults were on the AFDC system. About uh, 67% of poor families with children were touched by uh, our cash welfare system. Today, TANF serves only a fraction of those. These numbers are actually now out of date. They're too high. We're at about 800, less than 800,000 adults and about 2.5 million children. Only about 23% of all poor families with children are touched by our cash welfare system today. Uh, And this just shows that this is not because people have gotten so much better off. They're no longer eligible for TANF. Eligible people simply aren't coming to TANF's doors. Now, this is the picture for Kentucky. Back in the late 1970s, you were covering about 90% of your poor families with children with TANF, with AFDC, TANF's uh, predecessor. By the time welfare was reformed, you were pretty low among your peer states. You were covering about 55%. The national average was 67. Today, the national average is 23%. You are at 19%. Now, not only is Kentucky below the national average, but your benefit payments, even if someone did manage to get on the rolls, are very, very low. Here we can see that the national average has gone down quite a bit since welfare reform. It's gone down by about a quarter in real terms, the maximum benefit a family of three can receive. But here uh, in Kentucky, it has gone down by a third. And a mother with two children and no other income at maximum can only claim $262 Two hundred and sixty-two dollars a month, even if she does manage to get on the rolls. So very low uh, payment standard, and this is despite the fact your poverty has gone up quite a bit since nineteen ninety-six, and in more importantly, your deep poverty—people living below fifty percent of the poverty line—has climbed from about forty-seven thousand to about seventy thousand. Now, as I said, the reason we named the chapter Welfare as Dead is because of how dead it is in the minds of our respondents, the 18 families that we identified in these four places and followed intensively through many months and years. Donna Harris, one of the first women to enroll in our study, she and her daughter, Brianna, who was 16, often, when they could manage it, uh, dressed in matching outfits from Aeropostale. They used to walk arm-in-arm. Brianna sort of imitating her her mother's stride. They had been living in a series of homeless shelters since Madonna lost her job at a local record store after $7 went missing from the cash drawer and she couldn't account for it. She'd been working for eight years at that store at the time that she was let go. Brianna had a a horrible stress rash on her face you know, from the hardship the family was enduring. They were in their third homeless shelter in a row uh, at the time that I first met them. Finally, one weekend, uh, I was hanging out with them, and they had a tiny little dorm-sized refrigerator in the shelter where they were living, and the shelter didn't serve any meals on the weekends. All they had in there was a half carton of spoiled milk. If you have the hardcover version of the book, that's the picture, right, is the half carton of spoiled milk. And I said, you know, Madonna, why don't you just go apply for welfare? And she looked at me like I was crazy, and she said, haven't you heard... They just aren't giving that out anymore. You know, despite the fact she was enmeshed in a network of fairly poor folk, no one she knew was getting any money from the cash welfare program. Similarly, when we were in Johnson City, Tennessee, we were hanging out with Travis and Jessica Compton and their daughters, Rachel and Blythe. So Travis and uh, Jessica had both had their hours reduced to zero uh, when the foot traffic slowed in that very seasonal economy uh, right around Thanksgiving. It was now late January, and they'd had uh, no cash income coming in since then. They were badly behind on their rent. And Travis was, in fact, standing by the window as we talked, waiting for the sheriff's deputy to arrive to evict the family. So Luke, you know, finally couldn't hold it in anymore. And he said, Travis, why don't you go apply for welfare? And Travis looked at him and said, what's that? He had never heard of the program in this deeply poor uh, region. Finally, uh, Ray McCormick uh, from Cleveland actually had heard about TANF from a relative, but she had stead- you know, steadfastly resisted going to apply because she really thought of herself as a worker. And we're going to hear that this theme is very common among the two large-day poor. People in the aftermath of welfare reform, an unprecedented number of single mothers went to work. And uh, perhaps because of that, strongly identify as workers, strongly find the idea of being a dependent repellent. And so finally, when Azara literally had nothing left to eat, they're living in really an abandoned building uh, in the uh, west side of Cleveland on 25th Street. Ray goes to the welfare office and uh, she comes back and we're like, what happened? And she said, oh, they told me, honey, I'm sorry, there are so many needy people in Ohio right now There's just not enough to go around, come back next year. Now, according to our research, Ohio at that time was sitting on a million-dollar TANF (coughs) surplus. Okay, The TANF rolls in Cleveland had declined precipitously since 1996. But even since 2000, They had declined from about 18,000 to 1,500. And Ray was the victim. Ray, uh, we had her keep a journal because, of course, we couldn't accompany her. She went to that TANF office two more times and was also dismissed for other kind of frivolous uh, reasons and was not allowed uh, to to apply uh, for this vital program that would have kept her and her daughter from homelessness. So that's leg one. Leg two is perilous work. Many of you were around in the 1990s. There's some young people here that maybe have only a faint memory of 1990 because you were too young and, you know, doing other things than worrying about the economy. It's simply true that the bad jobs of the late 1990s were much, much better than the bad jobs of today. And uh, the perils of work, the degradation of low-wage work is clearly playing a role in the story that I'm telling. But I want to clear up one potential misunderstanding. And that is, a lot of people think of the $2 a day poor as the generational poor, people who are just deeply poor all the time and are deeply disconnected from the world of work. This does not turn out to be true. In fact, it is absolutely and completely not true according to the best data we have. And again, these are data from the Survey of Income and Program Participation, the survey which tracks more income of the poor Uh, than any other survey that we have. So we asked a very simple question of these data because as we began to get to know these 18 families, we found they had substantial work histories, they were (laughs) eager to find work, Uh, they were engaged often in sort of relentless work searches, and we're thinking, what is all this stuff about work? You know, we, like many people, have thought of the generational poor and the working poor as two different groups. So we went to the SIP and we asked a very simple question. Following children over the course of a year who qualify as $2 a day poor, how many of those children have an adult in the household who claimed anything from TANF in that year? And what you see here is the just plain poor and the $2 a day poor on the other side. And you see very little TANF use from either group. But when you ask them how many had an adult in the household who worked for at least a month, strikingly you see much higher numbers. In fact, for the just plain poor, it's 90%. I mean, this is how deep the penetration of work is in the lives of poor households. It's, it's really very striking. And even amongst our poorest Americans, the $2 dollar a day poor, that figure is 70%. It goes up to about 90% if you follow those families uh, for two years. So very deep penetration of work activity among the $2 dollar a day poor. So uh, what's going on? Well, the quality of jobs are part of the story. You know, in the book, we tell the story of Jennifer Hernandez and her children, Caitlin and Cole. We also meet them uh, after they've lived in a string of homeless shelters, each limiting their stay to only four months because that's how the funding works. You all know that story. So they're in their third shelter, and uh, this particular shelter uh, gives you access to a one-year voucher if you can get a job during your four-month stay at the shelter. So Jennifer is on it, right? She is pounding the streets of the Clybourne Corridor on the west side of Chicago. She is going to find a job. No luck. No luck. No luck. Literally, the day before she and the family would have gotten evicted from the shelter, uh, she finally gets a job at Chicago, Chicago uh, City Custodial <coughs> Services. And she is so excited about this job. It's one of the few... Uh, people in our study that actually got a full-time job, and uh, she loved it because she was cleaning corporate office buildings and and corporate apartments between tenants. She really felt proud of the difference she'd made that day, but as the Chicago winter uh, approached, and you know, you know, Chicago winters are cold. Those contracts dried up, and, and more and more she was relegated to cleaning foreclosed homes on the south side of Chicago and, and readying them for, for retail. Now, There's a couple things you ought to know about foreclosed homes. One, they have no heat and no electricity and water, exactly. So imagine this cleaning uh, crew driving in with hot water sloshing in the buckets. You know, they unlock the padlock of this abandoned house. They never know what they're going to find in their wildlife you know, uh, in Jennifer's words, a a drug den. Uh, Sometimes scrappers have been in, uh, ripping, uh, you know, extracting from the home every piece of metal that is of value. Oftentimes the homes are moldy and have other toxins, peeling paint and so on. So as Jennifer begins to clean, it gets colder and colder. She's piling on the coats from the Salvation Army. She and her co-workers Hands are scarred and even bleeding you know, from the chemicals that they're using. She begins to get sick. She's an asthmatic. After a couple of trips to the emergency room, she misses a few days of work. Then her kids begin picking up uh, these sicknesses, and they are also asthmatic. And her, her boss, uh, as many employers do, decides to punish her for being a less-than-reliable employee by reducing her hours. So Jennifer's hours are reduced uh, from 35 to 20 to 15 to 10. Finally, she realizes she's going to have to quit this job, get well, because she has only three months left of that housing subsidy, at which time she's supposed to have become self-sufficient. So, naturally, she ends up in a spell of $2 a day poverty. I'll tell you a little bit more about her story later. Another story in this regard uh, really, really um, speaks to the lack of flexibility of employers. All employees need give. But more and more, the kinds of employers that employ the $2 a day poor do not have any give in the work arrangements. So, uh, Ray McCormick, uh, my favorite character in the book, she is just such a worker uh, she's been working since 16 at a Kmart on West 65th Street in Cleveland. Uh, she loves the work, even though Kmart's never given her more than 25 hours. She's a dedicated employer. And then Super Walmart comes to town and closes Kmart down. So she decides she is going to find her future at the Super Walmart. And uh, she does get a job there as a cashier for 25 hours a week. You know, Employers just don't want to give you full-time hours in these industries and she decides she is going to become employee of the month that's her goal so how do you become employee of the month as a cashier well she begins observing other cashiers and this is a super Walmart, so they sell produce and she notices that this is what's really slowing cashiers down is they have to look up the barcodes of the produce items so uh, she has a a little phone uh, with a recording device and she begins writing down these barcode numbers reading them into her recording device. And then when she goes home, she puts her earphones on when she's ready to go to bed and she just puts a recording device on continuous play. So she wakes up the next morning (laughs) and as she says, my subconscious did the job. So sure enough, she is named employee of the month twice in the first six months of her employment. Then comes the day uh, when it all falls apart. She's been living with a crew of sort of unrelated people in this abandoned house on the west side of Chicago and she pays a pretty large portion of her earnings to have access to the truck that gets her to and from her job. She's just given over to sort of the guy who runs this sort of informal boarding house and owns the truck her portion of the truck's keep, plus she's filled the truck up with gas, you know, she doesn't go out on the weekend, she's playing with her daughter Azara she gets in that truck on Monday morning. It's empty, right? Her fictive aunt and uncle have run errands over the weekend and driven up all the gas. She's desperate, so she calls her employer. Nobody in the household, of course, has a penny to lend her. And she said, can someone give the $2, you know, two-time employee of the month a ride or a loan? And uh, the manager says to her, if you can't figure out how to get here on time, don't bother coming back at all. Now, why does he say this? Because he's got a hundred other people with less complex situations than Ray's lined up to take that job. So, just two little hints of, of the various ways in which work really uh, fails the extreme poor. Third, a room of one's own housing. If you've read Matt Desmond's book, Evicted, you know that it is a ubiquitous feature of being $2 a day poor, (coughs) that your housing is unstable, you're virtually certain to become homeless or precariously housed. Uh, The situation that really characterized our families is repeated perilous double ups. Now, if you know anything about landlords, they don't let people stay double up in their units, right? Because they're really worried about that water bill. Water can uh, be the sinker or the success of an urban landlord. So often uh, these double ups are very precarious. As we were doing this research, we got into the uh, research on ACEs, uh, adverse childhood experiences. Uh, We know that uh, if you experience trauma as a child, it has a very long shadow. It follows you throughout the life course. And indeed, this precariously doubled up situation is where most kids experience these just really horrible traumas. Jennifer Hernandez's uh, daughter, Caitlin, was raped by an uncle in this situation. Uh, There's a very harrowing story of how uh, she got the kids out of that home. Ray McCormick has been living in $2 a day poverty on and off since she was uh, 12 years old, and her father died, uh, and her mother ran off to the mountains of Tennessee with a lover, leaving her and her pit bull sweetie alone for months with no one to care for them. All she had was her, her father's Social Security check. As we've talked to her over the months and years, and we asked her about uh, adverse childhood experiences, she matter-of-factly said to us, oh, yeah, I've been beat, I've been raped. And again, here are statistics from our nation's school on the rise in the number of homeless children. So you want to know how these families survive? Again, I'm going to give you only a tiny taste of this. There is a lot of entrepreneurship involved here. Plasma sales and trading SNAP for cash are the two most common of these uh, survival strategies, so I'll describe those briefly. Jessica Compton, Travis's wife in Johnson City, Tennessee, literally brings the only cash into the household they have through twice-weekly plasma donations. This 111-pound woman is one pound over the limit, and she says, uh, especially if my iron's down, I get, like, really tired uh, you know, most people think that the idea that you have to supply, support your kids literally by giving away your life's blood is, is appalling. And I should say that the United States is the only nation on earth that allows you to give plasma as often as two times a week. Uh, others deeming this a safety hazard. Uh, this is why America is the nation's OPEC of blood plasma. We provide up to 70% of the world's plasma because of these laws. And as you can see, plasma sales in the United States have risen dramatically over the period that we're talking about. So I want to end with a story about the Delta. The Delta, in some ways, is a, it's a dystopian version of what America could become if we let the safety net shrink further. You know, in, in uh, the, the Delta, in many ways, work has virtually disappeared. You've got starving children sitting on the edge of cornfields where the corn... Is not knee-high by the 4th of July, the way it was in my Minnesota hometown, but 10 feet high. Of course, this is not corn for people. We met a family there that we write about in detail. uh, The Hicks family, Alva Mae Hicks, has 13 children. She works when she can, but at at the time that we are interviewing them, she hasn't worked for several years. You know, the, the, the house is incredible. There are only two bedrooms, so seven kids sleep like logs. The short way on a twin bed where the other six kids asleep on a trash-picked rug on the floor in the living room. Alpha may sells $600 worth of food stamps to provide the $300 she needs to pay the utilities. The rent is covered by Section 8. And that means this family, a week and a half into the month, is desperately hungry. I've never met such hungry, hungry kids. Tabitha, at 15, is just so hungry. And a teacher... <laughs> A gym teacher inboxes her on Facebook one day and says, I've been watching you since you were young, waiting for you to mature. And he then invites her to his home after school and offers her food if she'll she'll agree to have sex with him. This arrangement lasts for four months before, desperate, she finds another teacher to confide in. And uh, kind of a miraculous situation occurs where she actually is escapes the situation uh, and, and ends up in a prestigious boarding school in, in Memphis, Tennessee. But I was sitting with, and I'll end with this, with Tabitha in Clarksdale, Mississippi, outside Yazoo Pass, which is, you know, co- coincidentally the old Woolworths where the Freedom Riders tried to sit, at least. It was kind of dusk. We're sitting outside and And I said, so, Tabitha, what did it feel like to be that hungry? And she said, well, actually, it feels like you want to be dead because it's peaceful being dead. But I will say that the one thing our families told us over and over again is that they didn't want more handouts. They wanted more work. Work was all over these interviews, and we think the reason why is because they saw work as a form of belonging. They talked again and again about how they wanted to contribute to their communities. They wanted to be valued. They wanted to belong. So we endorse in the last chapter a litmus test for all efforts going forward, a sort of a checkbox that you can employ in your own work as you go about advocating for the poor. Does what you're doing, will what you're doing serve to isolate or integrate the poor? Will, like the old welfare system, it stigmatize people and and literally strip them of their citizenship in exchange for $292 a month? Or will it incorporate them, welcome them, and make them feel a sense of power and autonomy and and like valued members of, of their community? So, I'll end there. Thank you.
1: You're listening to Mountain Talk Monday. I'm Kelly Haywood. That was Dr. Catherine Eden speaking at the 2017 KSEP Policy Conference held in January on her book, $2 a Day, Living on Almost Nothing in America. Coming up, we will be hearing what the state of Kentucky's economy is and what new policies to expect in 2017. But first, this news from the Ohio Valley Resource. The Ohio Valley once helped give rise to the national labor movement. Now, the region is seeing a move toward right-to-work laws, which unions oppose. Proponents say the laws attract new businesses, but opponents say there's little evidence to support that. Becca Schimmel has a closer look.
2: Mike Mullis is a site selection consultant who has spent 25 years helping global corporations such as Toyota pick the places where they will build major projects. He says some companies, particularly in manufacturing, will perk up when they hear the words right to work. However, that doesn't mean businesses will come flocking to a state.
1: The thing that is misunderstood by many people is that right to work does not guarantee you projects. It simply guarantees you more opportunity.
2: He says other factors are more important, such as the skill of the workforce, infrastructure, and transportation. Mullis supports right-to-work, but he notes many oversimplify its connection to workplace growth. The Supreme Court ruled in the 1970s that an employee cannot be forced to join a union as a condition of employment. Right-to-work laws, which are decided on a state-by-state basis, often go a step further. They eliminate the requirement for non-union workers to pay what are called fair share fees. Unions strongly object to that, as we'll hear in a moment. But University of Kentucky economist Kenneth Trotsky says such laws can help attract businesses. That's
3: essentially what the, the research shows, is that when plants become unionized, you see a decline in productivity.
2: Trotsky says businesses like the promise of flexible workplace schedules and greater productivity.
3: It sends a signal to businesses that, hey, the state, you know, as a state, We are trying to make ourselves more um, open and friendly and um, as flexible as possible for businesses that want to locate here um, in an attempt to sort of basically attract those businesses and the jobs that come with them.
2: He says new businesses that locate in right-to-work states are competing for the same skilled workers, so even if wages lower, it would not be as dramatic as some opponents of the law say. Ross Eisenbrae is vice president of the Economic Policy Institute, a nonprofit think tank focused on the needs of middle and low income workers. He says right to work has never been shown to make a difference in employment growth. Eisenbrae is skeptical of claims that right to work laws do much to attract new business.
3: Corporate CEOs who answer surveys about what are the factors that determine where they locate don't even have right to work in the top 10 factors that influence their decisions.
2: Eisenbray points to economic evidence showing that right-to-work laws come at a cost in the form of weaker unions and lower wages. In West Virginia, a group of unions is suing the state over its new right-to-work law. A judge put a stay on the law shortly after it was signed last year. Ken Hall is general secretary treasurer with the Teamsters, one of the unions involved in the lawsuit.
3: If this was good for workers, why is it that like eight
1: of the ten states with the lowest per capita income are right-to-work states?
2: Hall says that right-to-work laws mean unions don't have the option of collecting money from non-members, but the unions are still responsible for collective bargaining for those employees and defending them in the event of grievances. Hall says that weakens unions and can hurt workers more than it helps a region generate new business.
0: That's part of the problem here, that it's been, it's been so,
3: so much dishonesty. I mean, put the facts out there and then let the people decide.
2: The unions expect a decision on their challenge to West Virginia's law in a couple of weeks. Kentucky is just beginning to implement its new right-to-work law as Ohio is reviving its debate on the issue. The real effect of right-to-work in this region, once dominated by union labor, remains to be seen. For the Ohio Valley Resource, I'm Becca Schimmel in Bowling Green, Kentucky.
1: The Ohio Valley Resource is made possible with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and WMMT. Now on Mountain Talk Monday, the Executive Director of the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy, Jason Bailey, addresses the 2017 KCEP Policy Conference on Where We Stand.
3: You all know that 2017 is a a crucial year when it comes to to public policy here in the Commonwealth, and one where changes that are happening and could happen are, are really monumental single-party control of the legislature and the governor's seat for the first time in the modern era, plus the inauguration of uh, President Trump and a Republican Congress, I mean major policy changes are on the table. And perhaps never in recent memory has there been a year where it's more important for Kentuckians to be aware and educated about the implications of policies being debated for our, our lives and our families and our, our communities. And in trying to think about this situation, you know, it said that the... Uh, The pessimist complains about the wind, the optimist expects the wind to change, and the realist adjusts the sails. And that's what I hope we can do in our own small way today. So we'll look at some of the big economic issues we've heard about already in 2017. We'll be hearing about more over this year in Frankfurt and Washington. And I'm going to kick us off by sharing at a kind of a really high level what we at KCEP are seeing when it comes to the economy and the policy landscape. Uh, One of the things we see as central to our mission is to try to put the facts out there. And in in the days of alternative facts and fake news and accusations of fake news, if you don't like the facts, it makes the real information really harder to get, we all know, but never more vital. So we'll talk a little bit about the recent past first before I get into what we kind of face in the present. As you know, we're in a long period of recovery from the Great Recession. Our state's unemployment rate went up to as high as 10.9% in 2009. It's since fallen gradually, and it's now at 4.8%, which is the lowest level since 2001. Among the good news is we've seen jobs in Kentucky's auto industry bounce back following the federal bailout, as well as people just beginning to buy cars more in the recovery, and in part because of the strength of the auto industry here, Kentucky's manufacturing job growth has been stronger than all of our surrounding states. Healthcare care has been a real uh, bright spot the last few years where Kentucky's been a national leader in reducing the share of our population that's uninsured from more than 20% to less than 8% thanks to the Affordable Care Act and the state's implementation of, of the Medicaid expansion. We've added 12,000 jobs in doctor's offices and in hospitals just in the last two years thanks to the federal dollars flowing into our state. We also saw uh, real median wages, so the wages that a typical worker uh, brings home, grow in 2015 uh, for the first time since 2001 uh, as the recovery strengthened. And we've also seen the beginning of new funding efforts to start transitioning the eastern Kentucky economy in the face of the sharp decline in coal jobs that just will not bounce back to where they once were. So there have been some bright spots in our recent progress that are important to recognize, things that that President Obama, that working with Congress, did right in rescuing the economy in the Recovery Act and expanding health care. Kentucky did right in seizing the opportunity of the Affordable Care Act, and until recently, um, holding back changes that some nearby states have done that weaken public investment and lower wages. But at the same time, there have been serious challenges in our state, economic challenges, and a strong sense of dissatisfaction in some communities at the state of the economy, and I think for good reason. Despite our, our low unemployment rate now, we still face a shortage of jobs, as many Kentuckians have become <coughs> discouraged and finding work are no longer officially counted as unemployed. The share of Kentuckians who are in their prime working years, 25 to 54, that have a job, are st- that level is still significantly below where it was before the recession, and on that measure, our, rate, our employment rate is the second lowest in the country, behind only uh, West Virginia. If that rate in Kentucky was as good as it was in the year 2000 when the economy was actually strong, more than 100,000 more Kentuckians would have a job today. Job growth we've seen in recent years has been concentrated in more prosperous parts of the state, particularly central Kentucky where we are now. The economies of eastern and much of rural Kentucky really haven't recovered and weren't strong when the rest of the nation and and state were strong. Eighteen eastern Kentucky counties have had... A bigger than 20% drop in the number of people employed compared to a decade ago, and the loss of coal jobs in southeastern Kentucky and steel jobs in northeastern Kentucky have had ripple effects throughout those communities. For the state as a whole, construction jobs are also down, as we have failed, I would say failed as a country, to invest in infrastructure, even while there's a need for repairs of roads and bridges and as interest rates are low. And while, as I mentioned, manufacturing has improved in the last few years, we're still About 66,000 fewer, 20% fewer manufacturing jobs than we had in 2000 as technological changes and a large trade deficit have led to factories closing and jobs disappearing, hitting particular communities especially hard. Wages finally grew in 2015, as I mentioned, but that's following a long period where they were stagnant, and there's still a large gap between growth in wages and growth in productivity so that the gains of economic growth are not being shared broadly across Kentucky. Wages are still too low for many. Nearly a third of Kentucky workers are in jobs making less than twelve dollars an hour. The three most common occupations in Kentucky are restaurant worker, retail salesperson, and cashier. And we hear a lot about a skills gap in the economy, but the reality is that two-thirds of jobs require only a high school diploma, and that is projected to be about the same ratio a decade from now. In fact, the fastest-growing industry in Kentucky in recent years has been temporary agencies, as manufacturers and warehousing and other businesses restructure to outsource more of their employment so as to reduce costs. And that leads to low-wage jobs with little job security, training, opportunities for advancement. And many low-wage jobs face challenges around irregular scheduling or wage theft or lack of access <coughs> to sick leave. We also continue to see continuously big inequalities by race and by gender. The poverty rate for African-Americans in Kentucky is 31% compared to 17% for whites, and the racial wealth gap is is much larger than that. Institutional racism pervades our systems and culture, stands in the way of progress on closing these gaps. And Women's wages in Kentucky, as in the rest of the country, continue to lag significantly behind men's. And we've just had big increases in inequality overall. If you look at the last 35 years in this state, Real incomes for the top of 1% have risen 60%. Real incomes for everyone else have dropped by 2.6% on average. What's more, we've been undermining the foundation of future economic growth through lots and lots of budget cuts. We've endured 16 rounds of cuts since 2007, and as a result, we invest about a third less in higher education than we did, leading tuition to go up 50% at our colleges and universities. We've frozen the funding level for our K-12 schools for so long that it's now amounts to the third worst cut among all states once you've taken into account inflation. And a lot of important services have been cut 15 to 50 percent, leading to crisis in areas like social worker caseloads, among other challenges. And not only is that cutting into the investments we need to prosper in the future, it's also <laughs> eliminating jobs in communities. Kentucky's lost nearly 13,000 public sector jobs just in the last two years because of budget cuts at the state level and federal level. so We have fewer people providing a variety of public services in our communities. At the same time, our prison population is higher than it's ever been and has yet to go down despite criminal justice reforms we began in 2011. Kentucky actually has the seventh highest incarceration rate among all states, and that costs money, breaks apart families, and makes it uh, very difficult for people to keep their lives on track. So. Now, it's important to note the shortcomings and challenges that I've talked about are not the result of some impersonal forces uh, beyond our control. They're the result, they come from policy decisions that are made. And they can be fixed and improved by better policy decisions, or they can be made worse by bad policy decisions. And that brings me to the situation we face today. So you will know in the first week of the 2017 Kentucky General Assembly, we saw quick passage of seven priority bills for the new majority, And among those are bills that will uh, reduce wages further. If you look at careful research, shows that workers in right-to-work states make about $1,500 less a year than in states without such law. Prevailing wage repeal will cut wages for construction workers and it will reduce investment in skill development. In Washington, Congress and the President have now taken the first steps toward repeal of the Affordable Care Act, and repeal would mean 486,000 Kentuckians would lose health insurance. The state would lose an estimated 45,000 jobs because of, the, because of the repeal. And we've already seen executive actions targeting immigrants and refugees. There's more, a lot more to come in 2017. <clears throat> On the bright side in Frankfurt, it's possible we'll see some small steps towards criminal justice reform, including moving more people from prison to probation and parole and allowing those who are released to have access to a wider range of job opportunities. But we also may see cuts in workers' compensation that make it even harder for injured workers to get help. We're likely to see the first steps toward greater private involvement and control of public schools, and we can look around and see the direction these policies may take in future years. In states like Indiana, where now 30,000 students attend a private or parochial school with public funds, other legislation to be put forward can limit access to justice, make further cuts to the retirement benefits of teachers and public employees, and there's a lot we don't know about the remainder of this year's General Assembly. There are 25 legislative days left, and there's one party uh, that is in full control of the ship. There's a lot of energy pinup up from so many years of divided government. We have a governor who clearly pushes hard for his priorities when he identifies some, and there's not an election this year, so we could see more sweeping proposals in a variety of areas. Uh, So it's very important for Kentuckians to be aware and diligent, understanding what's going on and weighing in uh, when appropriate. Uh, Will we see, for example, state attempts to reduce access to the safety net that we've seen in other states that will make it harder for people to get SNAP or TANF or other public benefits? Proposals the state is already ready, planning to implement in Medicaid once they get the green light from Washington. Will we see Kentucky try to join the call for a new constitutional convention? to create a balanced budget amendment to the Constitution, which is a a very dangerous proposal that is close to the number of states passing resolutions to call such a convention. We haven't had a convention since 1787, but that is legitimately on the table now. We also know the governor and legislative leaders hope to do tax reform this year in a special session, probably sometime in the fall. Kentucky seriously needs tax reform. Our state gives away billions of dollars in tax breaks that we never scrutinize or close, And those holes in the code mean we can't um, adequately invest in our schools, health, other building blocks of thriving communities. It also means we have an upside-down tax system where people in the middle and the bottom pay more in taxes as a share of their income than do those at the top. However, uh, what we're hearing about tax reform would not improve that situation but would make it worse. We know that states like Kansas have passed tax changes that shift from income to sales taxes, which our governor says he wants to do. Creating massive new holes in the budget in order to give very large tax cuts to the people at the top. We also know there are big policy changes coming at the or issues coming up at the federal level. The big question around repeal of the Affordable Care Act, more around immigrant restrictions, tax reform that gives more breaks to the wealthy, possibly big changes to the public benefit programs that will make the problem of rising deep poverty, the increase in deep poverty in the United States, which our keynote speaker, Catherine Eden, uh, talks about in her book, $2 a day, potentially much worse. So, it's a big year, and it's really dizzying the number of things that are in play, including many that I didn't, I didn't mention, didn't have time to mention. But when we talk about and learn about some of these challenges, you know, we think we should also keep in mind, what should we be doing? What kind of agenda should we be talking about as a state and as a nation? What's a better policy course that can help us fulfill our promise as a commonwealth? What's an agenda that would create jobs, that would lift wages, that would improve quality of life, that would take on structural barriers like racism? Things like really raising the minimum wage and improving job quality through expanding rights on the job. Cleaning up the tax code of some of these tax breaks so we can fund the investments in our communities and our schools and make college affordable. Building on and improving the Affordable Care Act to make people healthier and more financially secure. Rebuilding our crumbling infrastructure so we can put people back to work, especially in those places that need it the most honoring Eastern Kentucky's contribution to our nation by helping the region bridge the serious gap it now faces and reinvest in a new economy as the old one transitions and reduce the number of Kentuckians incarcerated and supporting those who've served time, move into family-supporting jobs. And there's so much more. You know, a commonwealth that works for everyone is possible if we work together, and our organization wants to support you all in that. So... I'll stop there. I
1: want to thank you. That's it for this edition of Mountain Talk Monday. I've been your host, Kelly Haywood. Special thanks to Mimi Pickering for her contribution to this episode. Be sure to check us out online at www.wmmt.org, where you can listen to this and past episodes, or download us as a podcast. From all of us here at WMMT, thanks for your ear.